Well, good morning and Merry Christmas to everybody. Hopefully I was the first to say that to you. It's the most wonderful time of the year and welcome to the Christmas Dynasty. You know, we began to think uh, several months ago about the popularity of the show Duck Dynasty and we thought about, you know, what if we did a series called Christmas Dynasty and what if our staff were to join the cast of Duck Dynasty? And so, to give you an idea of what that would look like, we sent some of our staff into wardrobe and makeup, and we have a few before and after photos to share with you. So I want to start with showing you our children's pastor. This is Brent Moxie, <laughs> dressed in his camo. This is his before shot, and here's his after. You know, the interesting thing is he looks better with the beard than he did before. Here's the next one. This is our beloved Pastors of Mysteries, as we say, ministries, Mr. Paul Richardson, babyface himself, and this is his after photo. <laughs> Looks a little like Gandalf. <laughs> Next, well, I had to play into the, the fun here. This is me on a deer hunt, peeking through the plastic ficus tree, and that's my before, here is my after. Oh, yes. Honey, you like that? She goes, love it. Sad thing is, if I grew my beard out, it would look just like that. Next, we have our beloved pastor, Brian Bloy. Look how dashing he is in his speckled beard and sunglasses. And that's his before, here's his after. Yes. He kind of looks like Phil Robertson. I mean, I really think he could join the cast there. Anyway, we're having a lot of fun. We don't have a real big tie-in to the whole Duck Dynasty TV show other than the word dynasty. Dynasty means lineage. It's our, it's our legacy. It's our genealogy, as Paul taught me is the correct way to, to say this. And, and through this series, we're going to be looking at the dynasty of Jesus. And as we look at his dynasty, we're going to learn a few things that hopefully will transform our lives and ultimately transform our legacy in our dynasty to come. So to begin with, we're going to take a look. Well, first of all, I want to comment on, you know, this being the Christmas season. You know, we do sing that song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of Year, and we talk about how awesome Christmas is. I mean, everybody's already decorating. Some of you already had your decorations up before Thanksgiving. There should be penalty for that in my mind. Sorry, Angela. But we love Christmas, all of the, the holiday parties and the decorating and the food and the, the decorations and just all the Christmas spirit, everything goes along. It's the most wonderful time of year, right? Well, it is on some occasions, but for a lot of you here this morning, for a lot of the people that we know in our lives, this is also one of the most stressful times of years. And I'm not talking about all of the shopping and all the to-do list. I'm talking about all of the, the, the past and, and the dysfunction and, and the family awkwardness we have to face during Christmas. Some of you will be faced with that family reunion, that, that family Christmas where that sibling who has hurt you is going to be there or, or the, the parent who has wronged you and you're going to have to face that dynamic, a very stressful, hard thing to do. Maybe you're going to a party where that person who has stabbed you in the back will be there and you're going to have to make small talk or, or be around that person who has hurt you so bad. Some of you are facing 
a lonely Christmas because of a broken relationship. Your children will not spend Christmas with you because they will be with your, with your former spouse having Christmas with another family. And for even those of us who have pretty tame families and pretty tame family dynamics, there is always that tension and that awkwardness that happens when we try to decide, okay, whose house is Christmas going to be at? And are we going to buy presents this year or are we not going to buy presents this year? And who's going to travel and who's not going to travel? Inevitably, feelings can get hurt and it can be tentious and it can be awkward and we can have very stressful times at Christmas. It's not always the most wonderful time of year, to be honest. But take heart because I think in this series you will be encouraged to know that even Jesus, even his family, was pretty awkward and had some dysfunctional family dynamics. And we're going to take a look at that today and hopefully see that maybe there's hope around the corner. I want to look at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 gives us the genealogy of Jesus. I don't want to throw up. I don't want to throw up. I just want to put up. (laughs) That would be really awkward, wouldn't it? On the board here. The genealogy of Jesus. Now, I'm not going to read through all this. This is all the begats, who begat who, and all that boring stuff that has some very big significance. But I've highlighted a few names here. First of all, there's Jacob. Jacob had trouble parenting, had some very bad parenting mistakes. We have Judah, who literally sold his brother into slavery. Tamar, she deceived her father-in-law and slept with him. Um, Pretty awkward. Um, Then we have Rahab, who was a prostitute, and then we have Ruth, who was not even Jewish, messed up the whole pedigree thing going on. We have David, who many of you know, committed adultery and plotted the, the death of Bathsheba's husband. There's some pretty dysfunctional craziness going on in, in the genealogy of Jesus. And what's interesting here is that Matthew chose to include these names. Some of them he didn't include, and there are others he did not include. Because I think he was trying to make a point that Jesus gets it. He understands his family dynamic is very similar in some ways to the ones that we face in our own lives. And as I was reading this, I was reading through the Christmas story and I came across the verse 21. And it jumped out to me. Listen to what it says. It says, this is in Joseph's dream. It says, she will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. Listen to this. For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. So often we use that word saved, salvation, and we just think, okay, it's just my ticket to heaven. What he's saying here, in light of the genealogy of Jesus, all the dysfunction, all of the crazy, messed up, sinful situations in his genealogy. Jesus came to save his people from their sins. He came to save us from our sins and all the the craziness that goes on in our lives, especially at Christmas time. So we want to look at a few characters in this story, lift them out and study and hopefully learn a few things about their lives that can impact our lives. Today, I want to talk about Judah. Judah is the son of Jacob. Remember, there is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob was one of the the 12 brothers who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. Early in in Judah's life, 
there was something that went down that you may have may remember or may not remember. Jacob, the father, had this really crazy affection and favoritism toward the brother named Joseph, and he was he was very played a very much favorite toward Joseph, and all the other brothers were jealous of him, and so they plotted and schemed to kill Joseph. Remember, they threw him in a pit, they stripped his coat of many colors, they tainted it with blood, and they deceived their father that he had been killed. But it was Judah in this whole process that spoke up. I didn't even realize this until I began to study the story. Judah said, hey, why don't we not kill him, and why don't we make a profit? Why don't we sell him and and sell him into slavery? So literally, the brothers sold their sibling, their brother, into slavery. Picture that. Picture what that really means, that you literally sold your brother to become a slave. Pretty evil act, I would say. So Joseph ends up in Egypt through a string of events, becomes a leader and a ruler in Egypt. Judah moves on. He gets married. He has three children. His oldest son dies. And in that time, it was customary that the second son would come and and marry the the widow and produce an offspring that would continue the line, that line. And so Judah gave his second son to the the widow. Her name was Tamar. But he refused to sleep with her and he refused to produce an offspring. So he died. Now Judah has lost two sons. He's upset. He blames Tamar. He moves her out of the picture. Well, Tamar gets upset as well, and she takes things under her own control. And so she disguises, get this stuff. I mean, it's kind of crazy. She disguises herself as a prostitute, and obviously she knew where Judah would be. Who knows what was going on in his life that he was in that place. But she disguises herself as a prostitute. She deceives him. He sleeps with her. She has a son named Perez, and that son becomes part of the lineage of Jesus. Crazy, messed up stuff, wouldn't you say? Now, moving on. There was a famine in the land. So Jacob, the father, sends his sons to Egypt to buy grain, but he holds back one son, the little brother named Benjamin. Little Ben. He loved Ben so much. Again, he had this this favoritism toward Ben, to Benjamin. The brothers go to Egypt. Long story short is Joseph recognizes them. He sends them back to get Benjamin. Benjamin and the whole brothers team come back to Egypt. And Joseph tests them. And he has his people put a silver cup in one of their sacks. And as they were leaving, they stopped them. They they accused them of, of stealing. So they go before Joseph and And Judah then emerges again. And Judah says, I don't even know what happened. Literally, we we paid for this. We're we're innocent. I I, I can't understand it. Joseph says, okay, whosoever sack it is in will become my slave. So they look in the sacks, and sure enough, it was little Ben's. It was Ben, the favored son. Judah knew his father would just kill over dead, literally would die if he lost his favorite son, another favorite son. So Judah steps in and says, okay, Joseph, at this time he still doesn't recognize him. He says, he says please, please take me instead. And he makes this passionate appeal to, toward Joseph to, to try to, to stand in the gap, to stand in place for Benjamin. With that, Joseph is moved to tears, and he reveals his true identity, and and the brothers come together, and they're reunited. Joseph moves the whole family in, and he takes care of them, and he provides for them, and he blesses them. 
an amazing story. Then, moving forward, Jacob is on his deathbed, the father. And he's blessing all the sons, and he comes to Judah. Once again, Judah, this guy who had had all this craziness in his life, and he looks at Judah and says, you know what? You will become a royal line. Your brothers will bow to you. People will pay tribute to the people in your line. Ultimately, he becomes a royal line through which Jesus is born, and he blesses Judah in that way. Pretty crazy story, huh? I mean, think about all the elements in that story in this family, in just this one family. There was obviously some dysfunctional parenting, some bad parenting. There was some envy and jealousy. There was a murder plot. There was betrayal at, at its highest level. There was deception. There was adultery. There was lying. There was conniving. All of these things were part of this family. Kind of makes some of our families look pretty tame. I think this would even make Jerry Springer blush, to so to speak. I mean, this was craziness. But you know, if you look at it as well, with another set of eyes, it's also a story of grace, a story of reconciliation, of restoration. And as I was studying this, this passage this week and looking at it, there was this one thing that jumped out at me that became very obvious to me. If you look at this story, you see that before reconciliation, before restoration occurred, there was always an extension of grace. Someone was proactive and took the initiative to extend grace that ultimately led to restoration. Think about it. Judah extended grace by offering to stand in the gap for his little brother Benjamin when he didn't have to. Joseph obviously extended grace by welcoming his brothers in when he very well had the authority and the power to just eliminate them based on what they had done to him. Jacob extended grace to Judah and allowed him, despite his past, to become someone God would use to produce a royal line, ultimately ending with Jesus being born. And Jesus extended grace to us when he proactively took the initiative to come to this earth, to live a sinless life, to, to face one of the most horrible deaths you could face, crucifixion on a cross, in order to bridge the gap for us, to pay our debt so that justice could be done, so that we could be forgiven, so that grace could be applied in our life. He bled, he died, he resurrected from the dead, proving himself God. It was all about extending grace so that there could be reconciliation, ultimately so that we could be reconciled to God. You know, if we're going to see reconciliation and restoration in some of our awkward, dysfunctional relationships in our lives, we've got to extend grace. But the problem is, before we can extend grace, we've got to apply grace. And for a lot of us, even for myself, we don't completely always grasp what grace is all about. You see the equation here? When we apply grace, we can then extend grace. But in order to apply grace, we need to understand what grace is really all about. 
So let's look at that for a second. You tracking with me? Okay. You know, in our culture, I think we have decaffeinated what grace is really all about. I think we've reoriented and redefined grace in a lot of ways. Here's the definition I believe that most of us work off of. We work off the definition that receiving grace is receiving kindness that is justifiable. We receive grace when when we think it makes sense, when it's warranted, when it's logical to us. And so a lot of times we fall into a pattern of what Philip Yancey, who, by the way, wrote an incredible book called What's So Amazing About Grace. It's an incredible book. What he says is we fall into a pattern of ungrace. That's the complete opposite of grace. When someone jams us, when someone wrongs us, when they betray us, when they hurt us, what do we do? We wait for them to make the first move. We practice ungrace. We bow up. And we say, you know what? I'm not going to say I'm sorry. They're not even sorry. They haven't learned their lesson yet. I'm just going to let them stew on it. I'm going to let them get a little bit more miserable before we take action here. And we wait for the other person to, to make the first move. We practice ungrace. Sometimes this happens in our marriages as, as well. Um, my wife and I, Lindsay, we have a great marriage, and we don't argue a lot, have a lot of disagreements, but we do. We're normal. And when we do, there's something inside of me that wants to, to prove my point. There's something inside of me that wants to, to make her know that I don't like this situation. I'm right. She's wrong. And so I practice ungrace. The problem is I'm not real good at it. What I mean by that is I've always been, by nature, a pretty even kill guy. I don't get real mad real easy. I'm pretty, pretty level like this. So when I get mad, I have a real hard time expressing it. What I mean by that is I come off pretty dumb. I'm like the, like the little kid on the, on the playground that just gets so mad and goes, you meanie. That's all he could come up with. That's me. That's me. And so uh, a while back we were having some argument. I don't even remember what it was about. And I got mad and I thought, I'm going to show her just how mad I am about this, and I'm not going to give in. In fact, I'm going to demonstrate it. And so I went up to the stairs, and I started stomping up the stairs like this, and I saw some laundry, folded laundry right there on the stairs. So I took the folded laundry, and I took it, and I go, and I just threw it over the banister, and I thought, yeah, that'll show her. And so I'm stomping up the stairs, and I get up to the top rung or top stair, and I trip, and I make this huge fumbling sound kind of ruined the effect a little bit, I would say. And so later, after we had made up, she started laughing, and she said, you know, it was all I could do was not to just crack up in the moment when I heard you fall after you stomped up those stairs. And what was the deal with the laundry? Was that my folded laundry? She didn't even realize it was folded, and I messed it up. I'm so bad at this. But when we are wronged, when we have this tension in our relationship, we practice ungrace and we bow up and we wait for the other person to take the initiative and we don't extend grace. It's because we have the wrong definition of grace. We think it needs to make sense. We think it needs to be like, you know, like the, the underdog in the movies that's had a bad lot in life and has messed up and but we want to cheer him on, and when he gets a break, we're like, yes, he deserved that grace in his life. It's like the guy that was bad that turned good, and now we're so happy he's become a good guy, and he deserves all the good things in his life. Grace should make sense. 
but that's not grace. Let me read what God's definition of grace really is. God's definition of grace is this. Lean into this. Is receiving kindness that is undeserved and can never, ever be earned. Receiving kindness that is undeserved and can never be earned. You say, well, that don't make sense, Troy. That's illogical. Yep. That's what grace is. It's unexpected favor. It surprises us. It doesn't make sense. That's what we saw in the life of Judah and Joseph and Jacob. It was unexpected. It didn't make sense. It didn't add up. It wasn't deserved. It wasn't earned. No one forced them to earn it. It was grace. That's what grace is all about. We need to understand grace. I'm still learning about grace. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around what God's grace really looks like. I want to read to you some verses. Listen to these. It's powerful stuff. What God defines grace as. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. He came to save his people, remember? It is by for grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Christmas gifts. It was the ultimate gift. It's not something I can do. It's not something I can earn. I can never be good enough to warrant God's grace in my life. It's a gift. Working is like ungrace. It's me trying to earn it. Jesus says it's a gift. Romans 4, 7 through 8 says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So often, we picture God up in the sky with his little computer, with his spreadsheet, tallying up all of our little sins and trying to account for, well, you've done this good, so that made up for this one, but you haven't done enough for this sin over here. And he's doing this tally, and he's holding us accountable for every single little sin, and he's posting records online, and everybody can see it, and all of these things. That's not what it says. It says we are blessed because God does not hold us accountable. He doesn't keep the record. In fact, look at this verse in Psalm 103. This is how God views your sin. He says it is as far as the east is from the west. That's pretty far. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Guess what? God is not sitting there looking at you, obsessing over your sin. You are. That's ungrace. He's forgotten about it. When he died, he forgave every sin you have committed or will commit in your life. It is done. And when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, we apply that grace and forgiveness in our life once and for all. It's final. It's done. Jesus says it's as far as the east is from the west, yet we still find the time and the capacity to sit there and stew over our past and our mistakes and the sin that we've committed in our lives. Final verse I'm going to read is Romans 5.20. It says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. Listen. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So many times we think we are just too sinful. Our past is just too spectacular. We have really done it up good. Our sin is just too great. We have out the capacity of God's grace. 
God says you can never out God's grace. In fact, it abounds even more. Think about the genealogy of Jesus. Think about the lives of Judah and Joseph and, and all of those family members. There was some crazy sin, and God says he came to save his people from his sin, and grace abounds no matter what it is. You can never out God's grace. This is how God defines grace. I love the pictures that Jesus uses talking about grace. He uses parables and he paints a picture. Think about this. He uses the prodigal son. And here we see the picture of a lovesick father who is running, running to embrace his son that has gone astray. That's grace. He gives the illustration of an employer who pays the the employee that came in at the 11th hour who was late. He pays him full wages what he would pay someone who had worked the full day. That is grace. He gives the illustration of a ruler who cancels a debt that a servant could never repay. It was so great. He zeroes the balance. That is grace. I I love the picture of the banquet giver, the guy who throws the big lavish party. Maybe it was a holiday party. Who knows? And he goes out to the highways and the byways, and he finds the most irresponsible, the, the, the most delinquent, the, 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 the worst person, the most undeserving people, and brings them in and sets them at the banquet tele- table and celebrates them. That is grace. We've got to redefine grace, and we've got to begin to apply this grace in our life. We've got to begin to, to see ourselves through the lens of God's grace, how he defines grace, and it's not logical. It doesn't make sense. But if we're going to see reconciliation, if we're going to see peace in our lives and our relationships, then we have to apply grace in order to extend grace. How are we going to apply it? A lot of times, Pastors will talk here, grace, 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 and they make a big point about how awesome grace is and leave you home with all these definitions. And you go home and go, well, it's great knowledge. How do we apply it? What does that look like when you go home today? When we apply grace, it begins with confession. It's simply agreeing with God and saying, God, I've messed up. I sold my brother into slavery. I've sinned. We agree with God. There's something freeing just coming clean, being truthful with God about what we've done. But once we say that, then we've got to remember what God says about grace and our sin. We are forgiven. It is forgotten. It is far as the east is from the west, and we've got to move forward in that knowledge. That means we can no longer define ourselves by our sin by our baggage, by our dysfunction. We can no longer be acting like the victim, the failure, the person who screwed up, whatever it is we see in the mirror and whatever label we want to put on ourselves. God abolished it on the cross and he paid for that and his grace covers it. And we've got to learn to walk forward in our decisions and our choices in our language, in our conversations, in our relationships, 
as a person who understands and walks and moves in the truth of what grace is really all about. And we have to do it day in and day out. I find in myself, I can get down about my sin, but I have to remind myself daily what God says about it and who I am, that I am his beloved child who is forgiven. And you know what's great about grace? It doesn't stay right here. It has ripple effects. When I walk forward in grace, people see it. It comes out in my language. It comes out in my relationships. And it begins to to permeate every dimension of my life and relationships in the world around me. When we apply grace, we then have the motivation and the capacity and, and the desire to extend grace to those who don't deserve it in our lives. I want to challenge you this holiday season to dive into grace. To think about that sin that you're just hanging on to, that past memory, those issues, those dysfunctions, all the bitterness and all the collateral that comes along with it. I just want you to begin to apply God's grace to it. To walk away different and changed. I want to challenge you to break the pattern of ungrace in your relationships. I want to challenge you to make the first move. I want to challenge you to take the initiative. To extend grace to the people in your lives that may not even deserve it. Just like we saw in Judah, Joseph, Jacob. I don't know what that might look like. It may mean that you just send a Christmas card to someone It may mean that you send an invitation to a function at your home. It may mean a phone call. It may mean literally saying the words, I'm sorry. I don't know what it looks like. It may look different for different people. But I know and I'm assured that when we move forward and we extend grace to the people in our lives, that will begin the cycle. It will begin the process of restoration can't promise you it'll happen overnight. I can't promise you that everything will just be, you know, holiday cheer, but it will begin the process. You see, when we take a look at Judah and, the, and Joseph and Jacob and the genealogy of Jesus, we realize that God truly did come to save his people from his sins, that his grace is sufficient for all of us. And when we apply that grace and we extend that grace, we will find peace and reconciliation, not only in ourselves, with God, but in the lives and the relationships around us. And when we do that, this truly could be the most wonderful time of the year. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your grace. Not one of us is deserving of it, and yet you've given it to us. Thank you for the hope of restoration and reconciliation in our, in our relationships. God, I just pray that you would help us all to discover more about your grace and to apply it in our lives. This morning, if you're here and maybe you've never entered into a relationship with Jesus, you've never applied his grace in your life, first and foremost, by accepting him into your life, I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me. It's not a magic prayer, but it's just a simple prayer, a heartfelt commitment to him 
Jesus, I recognize I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark. I know you died on a cross. You paid the debt for my sin. I invite you and ask you to forgive me for my sin once and for all. Thank you for that grace. And I just commit now to following you and walking in grace the rest of my days. In Jesus' name, amen.